Part Two of Security by Paul Anderson. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Reading by Greg Marguerite. Part Two of Security by Paul Anderson. She laughed and clapped his shoulder. You know, Alan, there are times when I think you're human after all. Thanks, he grinned wryly. How about, uh, how about having a, a beer with me now, to celebrate? Why, sure. They went down to the shop. A cooler of beer was there, its contents being reckoned as among the essential supplies brought from Earth by Jessup. Lancaster uncapped two bottles, and he and Karen sat down on a bench, swinging their legs and looking over the silent waiting machines. Most of the station personnel were off duty now, in the arbitrary night. He sighed at last. I like it here. I'm glad you do, Alan. It's a funny place, but I like it. The station and all its wacky inhabitants, their heterodox is the very devil, and would have trouble getting a dog-catcher's job back home but they're all refreshing." Lancaster snapped his fingers. "'Say, that's it. That's why you're all out here. The government needs your talents, and you aren't quite trusted. So you're put here out of range of spies, right?' "'Do you have to see a rebel with notebook in hand under every bed?' she asked with a hint of weariness. "'The First Amendment hasn't been repealed yet, they say. Theoretically, we're all entitled to our own opinions.' Okay, okay, I won't argue politics. Uh, tell me about some of the people here, will you? They're an odd bunch. I can't tell you much, Alan. That's where security does apply. Isaacson is a Martian colonist. You've probably guessed that already. Jessup lost his hand in a, a fight with some enemies once. The Dufres had a son who was killed in the Moroccan incident. Lancaster remembered that that affair had involved American power used to crush a French spy ring centered in North Africa. Sovereignty had to be brushed aside. But, damn it, you had to preserve the status quo for your own survival, if nothing else. Huang had to go into exile when the Chinese government changed hands a few years back. I... Yes? he asked her when her voice faded out. Oh, I might as well tell you. My husband and I lived in America after our marriage. He was a good biotechnician and had a job with one of the big pharmaceutical companies. Only he went to camp. Later he died or was shot. I don't know which. Her words were flat. That's a shame, he said inadequately. The funny part of it is he wasn't engaged in treason at all. He was quite satisfied with things as they were. Oh, he talked a little, but so does everybody. I imagine some rival or enemy put the finger on him." "'Those things happen,' said Lancaster. It's too bad, but they happen." "'They're bound to occur in a police state,' she said. Sorry, we weren't going to argue politics, were we?" "'I never said the world was perfect, Karen. Far from it. Only what alternative have we got? Any change is likely to be so dangerous that, well, man can't afford mistakes." No, he can't. But I wonder if he isn't making one right now. Oh, well. Give me another beer." They talked on indifferent subjects till Karen said it was her bedtime. Lancaster escorted her to her apartment. She looked at him curiously as he said good night, and then went inside and closed the door. 
Lancaster had trouble getting to sleep. The corrected equations provided an adequate theory of superdielectricity, a theory with tantalizing hints about still other phenomena, and gave the research team a precise idea of what they wanted in the way of crystal structure. Actually, the substance to be formed was only semi-crystalline, with plastic features as well, all interwoven with a grid of carbon-linked atoms. Now the trick was to produce that stuff. Calculation revealed what elements would be needed and what spatial arrangement. Only, how did you get the atoms to assume the required configuration and hook up in the right way? Theory would get you only so far. Thereafter it was cut and try. Lancaster rolled up his sleeves with the rest and let Karen take over the leadership. She was the best experimenter. He spent some glorious and all but sleepless weeks, greasy, dirty, living in a jungle of haywired apparatus with a restless slide rule. There were plenty of failures, a lot of heartbreak and profanity, an occasional injury. But they kept going, and they got there. The day came, or was it night, when Karen took a slab of darkly shining substance out of the furnace where it had been heat-aging. Rakan sawed it into several chunks for testing. It was Lancaster who worked on the electric properties. He applied voltage till his generator groaned, and watched in awe as meters climbed and climbed without any sign of stopping. He discharged the accumulated energy in a single blue flare that filled the lab with thunder and ozone. He tested for a time lag of an electric signal and wondered wildly if it didn't feel like sleeping on its weary path. The reports came in, excited yells from one end of the long cluttered room to the other, exultant whoops and men pounding each other on the back. This was it. This was the treasure at the rainbow's end. The substance and its properties were physically and chemically stable over a temperature range of hundreds of degrees. The breakdown voltage was up in the millions. The insulation resistance was better than the best known to Earth's science. The dielectric constant could be varied at will by a simple electric field normal to the applied voltage gradient, a field which could be generated by a couple of dry cells if need be, and ranged from a hundred thousand to about three billion. For all practical purposes, here was the ultimate dielectric. We did it! Frederick slapped Lancaster's back till it felt that the ribs must crack. We have it! Whoopee! yelled Karen. Suddenly they had joined hands and were dancing idiotically around the induction furnace. Lancaster clasped Rakan's talons without caring that it was a Martian. They sang then, sang till heads appeared at the door and the glassware shivered. Here we go round the mulberry bush, the mulberry bush, the mulberry bush. It called for a celebration. The end of a project meant no more than filling a last report and waiting for the next assignment. But they ran things differently out here. Somebody broke out a case of Venusian agua caliente. Somebody else led the way to a storeroom, tossed its contents into the hall, and festooned it with used computer tape. Rakan forgot his Martian dignity and fiddled for a square dance, with Isaacson doing the calling. The folk from the other end of the station swarmed in till the place overflowed. It was quite a party. Hours later, Lancaster was hazily aware of lying stretched on the floor. His head was in Karen's lap, and she was stroking his hair. The hardy survivors were following the Dufrères in French drinking songs, which are the best in the known universe. Rakan's fiddle wove in and out a lovely accompaniment to voices that were untrained but made rich and alive by triumph. 
Ser multom jivu quone scriva, isi gileiro e debu ver. Ser multom jivu quone scriva, isi gileiro e debu ver. Isi gi, wi wi wi, isi gi, no no no. Lancaster knew that he had never been really happy before. Berg showed up a couple of days later looking worried. Lancaster's vacation time was almost up. When he heard the news, his eyes snapped gleefully, and he pumped the physicist's hand. Good work, boy! There are things to clean up yet, said Lancaster, but it's all detail. Anybody can do it. And the material? Uh, what do you call it, anyway? Karen grinned. So far we've only named it Futz, she said. That's stuff spelled backward. Okay, okay. Uh, is it easy to manufacture? Sure. Now that we know how, anybody can make it in his own home, if he's handy at tinkering apparatus together. Fine, fine. Just what was needed. This is the ticket. Berg turned back to Lancaster. Okay, boy, you can pack now. We blast again in a few hours. The physicist shuffled his feet. What are my chances of getting reassigned back here? he asked. I've liked it immensely, and now that I know about it anyway... I'll see, I'll see. But remember, this is top secret. You go back to your regular job and don't say a word on this to anyone less than the President, no matter what happens. Understand?" Of course, snapped Lancaster, irritated. I know my duty. Yeah, so you do, Berg said. So you do. Leave-taking was tough for all concerned. They had grown fond of the quiet, bashful man. And as for him, he wondered how he'd get along among normal people. These were his sort. Karen wept openly and kissed him goodbye with a fervor that haunted his dreams afterwards. Then she stumbled desolately back to her quarters. Even Berg looked glum. He regained his cockiness on the trip home, though, and insisted on talking all the way. Lancaster, who wanted to be alone with his thoughts, was annoyed, but you don't insult a security man. You understand the importance of this whole business and why it has to be secret, nagged Berg. I'm not thinking of the scientific and industrial applications, but the military ones. Oh, sure, you can make lightning throwers if you want to, and you've overcome the fuel problem. With a few futz accumulators charged from any handy power source, you can build fuelless military vehicles, which would simplify your logistics immensely. And some really deadly handguns could be built, pistols the equivalent of a cannon almost. Lancaster's voice was dead. So what? So plenty. Those are only a few of the applications. If you use your imagination, you can think of dozens more. And the key point is, the futz and the essential gadgetry using it are cheap to make in quantity, easy to handle. The perfect weapon for the citizen soldier, or for the rebel. It isn't enough to decide the outcome of a war all by itself, but it may very well be precisely the extra element which will tip the military balance against the government. And I've already discussed what that means. Yeah, I remember. That's your department, not mine. Just let me forget about it. You'd better, said Berg. In the month after his return, Lancaster lived much as usual. He was scolded a few times for an increasing absent-mindedness and a lack of enthusiasm on the project, but that wasn't too serious. He became more of an introvert than ever. Having some difficulty with getting to sleep, he resorted to soporifics and then, in a savage reaction, to stimulants. 
but outwardly there was little to show the turmoil within him. He didn't know what to think. He had always been a loyal citizen, not a fanatic, but loyal, and it wasn't easy for him to question his own basic assumptions. But he had experienced something utterly alien to what he considered normal, and he had found the strangeness more congenial, more human, in every way, than the norm. He had breathed a different atmosphere, and it couldn't but seem to him that the air of Earth was tainted. He re-read Kipling's Chant Pagan with a new understanding, and began to search into neglected philosophies. He studied the news in detail, and his critical eye soon grew jaundiced. Did this editorial or that feature story have any semantic content at all? Or was it only a tom-tom beat of loaded connotations? The very statements of fact were subject to doubt. They should be checked against other accounts, or better yet, against direct observation. But other accounts were forbidden, and there was no chance to see for himself. He took to reading seditious pamphlets with some care, and listened to a number of underground broadcasts, and tried clumsily to sound out those of his acquaintances whom he suspected of rebellious thoughts. It all had to be done very cautiously, with occasional nightmare moments, when he thought he was being spied on. And was it right that a man should be afraid to hear a dissenting opinion? He wondered what his son was doing. It occurred to him that modern education existed largely to stultify independent thought. At the same time, he was unable to discard the beliefs of his whole life. Sedition was sedition, and treason was treason. You couldn't evade that fact. There were no more wars, plenty of minor clashes, but no real wars. There was a stable economy, and nobody lacked for the essentials. The universal state might be a poor solution to the problems of a time of troubles, but it was nevertheless a solution. Change would be unthinkably dangerous. Dangerous to whom? To the entrenched powers and their jackals? But the oppressed peoples of Earth had nothing to lose, really, except their lives and many of them seemed quite willing to sacrifice those. Did the rights of man stop at a full belly, or was there more? He tried to take refuge in cynicism. After all, he was well off, he was a successful jackal. But that wouldn't work either. He required a more basic philosophy. One thing that held him back was the thought that if he became a rebel he would be pitted against his friends not only those of Earth, but that strange, joyous crew out in space. He couldn't see fighting against them. Then there was the very practical consideration that he hadn't the faintest idea of how to contact the underground, even if he wanted to, and he'd make a hell of a poor conspirator. He was still in an unhappy and undecided whirlpool when the monitors came for him. They knocked on the door at midnight, as was their custom and he felt such an utter panic that he could barely make it across the apartment to let them in. The four burly men wavered before his eyes, and there was a roaring and a darkness in his head. They arrested him without ceremony on suspicion of treason, which meant that habeas corpus and even the right of trial didn't apply. Two of them escorted him to a car. The other two stayed to search his dwelling. At headquarters he was put in a cell and left to stew for some hours. Then a pair of men in uniform of the Federal Police led him to a questioning chamber. He was given a chair, and a smiling, soft-voiced man, almost fatherly, with his plump cheeks and white hair, offered him a cigarette and began talking to him. 
Just relax, Dr. Lancaster. This is pretty routine. If you've nothing to hide, then you've nothing to fear. Just tell the truth. Of course. It was a dry whisper. Oh, you're thirsty. So sorry. Alec, get Dr. Lancaster a glass of water, will you please? And by the way, my name is Harris. Let's call this a friendly conference, eh? Lancaster drank avidly. Harris's manner was disarming, and the physicist felt more at ease. This was, well, it was just a mistake, or maybe a simple spot check. Nothing to fear. He wouldn't be sent to camp. Not he. Such things happen to other people, not to Alan Lancaster. You've been immunized against Neoscope? asked Harris. Yes, it's routine for my rank and over. You know, in case we should ever be kidnapped. But why am I telling you this? Lancaster tried to smile. His face felt stiff. Hmm. Yes. Too bad. Of course, I've no objection at all to you using a lie detector on me. Fine, fine, Harris beamed and gestured to one of the expressionless policemen. A table was wheeled forth bearing the instrument. I'm glad you're so cooperative, Dr. Lancaster. You've no idea how much trouble it saves me, and you. They ran a few harmless calibrating questions. Then Harris said, still smiling, And now tell me, Dr. Lancaster, where were you really this summer? Lancaster felt his heart leap into his throat and knew in a sudden terror that the dials were registering his reaction. Why, I took my vacation, he stammered. It, it was in the southwest. Hmm. The machine doesn't quite agree with you. Harris remained impishly cheerful. But it's true. You can check back and— There are such things as doubles, you know. Come, come now. Let's not waste the whole night. We both have many other things to do. I— Look. Lancaster gulped down his panic and tried to speak calmly. Suppose I am lying. The machine should tell you that I'm not doing so out of disloyalty. There are things I can't tell anyone without clearance. Like if you asked me about my work on the project. I can't tell you that. Why don't you check through regular security channels? There was a man named Berg. At least he called himself that. You'll find that it's all perfectly okay with security. You can tell me anything, said Harris gently. I can't tell you this. Not anybody short of the President. Lancaster caught himself. Of course, that's assuming that I did really spend the summer for something other than my vacation. But— Harris sighed. I was afraid of this. I'm sorry, Lancaster. He nodded to his policeman. Go ahead, boys. Lancaster kept sliding into unconsciousness. They jolted him back to life with stimulant injections and vigorous slaps and resumed working on him. Now and then they would let up, and Harris's face would swim out of a haze of pain, smiling, friendly, sympathetic, offering him a smoke or a shot of whiskey. Lancaster sobbed and wanted more than anything else in the world to do as that kindly man asked. But he didn't dare. He knew what happened to those who revealed state secrets. Finally he was thrown back into his cell and left to himself. When he recovered from his faint, that was a very slow process. He had no idea of how many hours or days had gone by. There was a water tap in the room, and he drank thirstily, vomited the liquid up again, and sat with his head in his hands. So far, he thought dully, they hadn't done too much to him. 
He was short several teeth, and there were some broken fingers and toes, and maybe a floating kidney. The other bruises, lacerations, and burns would heal all right if they got the chance. Only they wouldn't. He wondered vaguely how security had gotten onto his track. Berg's precautions had been very thorough. So thorough, apparently, that Harris could find no trace of what had really happened that summer, and was going only on suspicion. But what had made him suspicious in the first place? An anonymous tip-off? From whom? Maybe some enemy, some rival on the project had chosen this way of getting rid of his sector chief. In the end, Lancaster thought wearily, he'd tell. Why not do it now? Then, probably, he'd only be shot for betraying Berg's confidence. That would be the easy way out. No, he'd hang on for a while. There was always a faint chance. His cell door opened and two guards came in. He was past flinching from them, but he had to be supported on his way to the questioning room. Harris sat there, still smiling. How do you do, Dr. Lancaster? he said politely. Not so well, thank you. The grin hurt his face. I'm sorry to hear that, but really it's your own fault. You, you know that. I can't tell you anything said Lancaster. I'm under security oath. I can't speak to this to anyone below the President. Harris looked annoyed. Don't you think the President has better things to do than come running to every enemy of the state that yaps after him? There's been some mistake, I tell you, pleaded Lancaster. I'll say there has, and you're the one that's made it. Go ahead, boys. Harris picked up a magazine and started reading. After a while, Lancaster focused his mind on Karen Marrick and kept it there. That helped him bear up. If they knew, out in the station, what was happening to him, they, well, they wouldn't forget him, try to pretend they'd never known him as the little fearful people of Earth did. They'd speak up and do their damnedest to save their friend. The blows seemed to come from very far away. They didn't do things like this out on the station. Lancaster realized the truth at that moment, but it held no surprise. The most natural thing in the world. And now, of course, he'd never talk. Maybe. When he woke up there was a man before him. The face blurred, seemed to grow to monstrous size and then move out to infinite distances. The voice of Harris had a ripple in it, wavering up and down, up and down. All right, Lancaster, here's the President, since you insist. Here he is. Go ahead, American, said the man. Tell me, it's your duty. No, said Lancaster. But I am the president. You wanted to see me. Most likely a double. Prove your identity. The man who looked like the president sighed and turned away. Lancaster woke up again, lying on a cot. He must have been brought awake by a stimulant, for a white-coated figure was beside him holding a hypodermic syringe. Harris was there, too, looking exasperated. "'Can you talk?' he asked. "'I—yes.' Lancaster's voice was a dull croak. He moved his head, feeling the ache of it. "'Look here, fellow,' said Harris. "'We've been pretty easy with you so far. Nothing has happened to you that can't be patched up. But we're getting impatient now. It's obvious that you're a traitor and hiding something.' Well. Yes, thought Lancaster, he was a traitor by one definition. Only it seemed to him that a man had a right to choose his own loyalties. 
Having experienced what the police state meant, he would have been untrue to himself if he had yielded to it. If you don't answer my questions in the next session, said Harris, we'll have to start getting really rough. Lancaster remained silent. It was too much effort to try to speak. Don't think you're being heroic, said Harris. There's nothing pretty or even very human about a man under interrogation. You've been screaming as loud as anybody. Lancaster looked away. He heard the doctor's voice. I'd advise giving him a few days' rest before starting again, sir. You're new here, aren't you? asked Harris. Yes, sir. I was only assigned to this duty a few weeks ago. Well, we don't put on kid gloves for traitors. That's not what I meant, sir, said the doctor. There are limits to pain beyond which further treatment simply doesn't register. Also, I'm a little suspicious about this man's heart. It has a murmur, and questioning puts a terrific strain on it. You wouldn't want him to die on your hands, would you, sir? Hmm. No. What do you advise? Just a few days in the hospital with treatment and rest. It'll also have a psychological effect as he thinks of what's waiting for him. Harris considered for a moment. All right. I've got enough other things to do anyway. Very good, sir. You won't regret this. Lancaster heard the footsteps retreat into silence. Presently the doctor came around to stand facing him. He was a short, curly-haired man of undistinguished appearance. For a moment they locked eyes. Then Lancaster closed his. He wanted to tell the doctor to go away, but it wasn't worth the trouble. Later he was put on a stretcher and carried down endless halls to another cell. This one had a hospital look about it, somehow, and the air was sharp with the smell of antiseptics. The doctor came when he was installed in bed and took his arm and slipped a needle into it. Sleepy time, he said. Lancaster drifted away again. When he woke up he felt darkness and movement. He looked around, wondering if he had gone blind, and the breath moaned out between his bruised lips. A hand was laid on his shoulder, and a voice spoke out of the black. It's okay, fella. Take it easy. There'll be no more questions. It was the doctor's voice, and the doctor looked nothing at all like Charon, but still Lancaster wondered if he weren't being ferried over the river of death. There was a thrumming all about him, and he heard a low keening of wind. Where are we going? he mumbled. Away. You're in a strata rocket now. Just take it easy. Lancaster fell asleep after a while. Beyond that there was a drugged, confused period where he was only dimly aware of moving and trying to talk. Shadows floated across his vision, shadows telling him something he couldn't quite grasp. He followed obediently enough. Full clarity came eventually, and he was lying in a bunk looking up at a metal ceiling. The shivering pulse of rockets trembled in his body. A spaceship? A spaceship! He sat up, heart thudding and looking wildly around. Hey! he cried. The remembered figure of Berg came through the door. Hello, Alan, he said. How are you feeling? I... you... Lancaster sank weakly back to his pillow. He grew aware that he was thoroughly bandaged, splinted, and braced, and that there was no more pain. Not much, anyway. I feel fine, he said. Good, good. The doc says you'll be okay. Berg sat down on the edge of the bunk. I can't stay here long, but the hell with it. We'll be at the station soon. You deserve to know some things, such as that you've been rescued. Well, 
That's obvious, said Lancaster. By us, the rebels, the underground, subversive characters. That's obvious, too. And thanks. The word was so ridiculously inadequate that Lancaster had to laugh. I suppose you've guessed most of it already, said Berg. We needed a scientist of your caliber for our project. One thing we're desperately short of is technical personnel, since the only real education in such lines is to be had on Earth, and most graduates find comfortable berths in the existing society. Like you, for instance. So we played a trick on you. We used part of our organization. Yes, we have a big one, and it's pretty smart and powerful, too, to convince you this was a government job of top secrecy. More damn things can be done in the name of security. Berg clicked his tongue. Everybody you saw at the station was more or less play-acting, of course. The whole thing was set up to fool you. We might not have gotten away with it if we'd used some other person, more shrewd about such things, but we'd studied you and knew you for an amiable, unsuspicious guy, too wrapped up in your own work to go witch-smelling. I guessed that much, admitted Lancaster, after I'd been in the cells for a while. Your way of living and thinking was so different from anything like— Yeah, I'm sorry as hell about that, Alan. We thought you could just return to ordinary life, but— Somehow, through one of those accidents or malices inevitable in a state where every man spies on his neighbor, you were hauled in. We knew of it at once. Yes, we've even infiltrated the secret police and decided to do something about it. Quite apart from the danger of your betraying what you knew. We could have eliminated that by quietly murdering you. There was the fact that we'd gotten you into this and we did owe you something. We managed to get Dr. Pappas transferred to the Inquisitory where you were being held. He drugged you, producing a remarkably corpse-like figure, and smuggled you out as simply another one who died under questioning. I used my security papers to get the body for special autopsy instead of the usual immediate cremation. Then we simply drove till we reached the strato-rocket we'd arranged to have ready, and you were flown to our spaceboat. And now you're on your way back to the station. You were kept under drugs most of the way to help you rest. They'd knocked you around quite a bit in the Inquisitory. So, Berg shrugged, Pappas can't go back to Earth now, of course, but we can always use a medic in space. And it was well worth the trouble to rescue you. I'm honored, said Lancaster. I still feel like hell about what happened to you, though. It's all right. I can't say I enjoyed it, but now that I've learned some hard facts, though... Well, forget the painful nature of the lesson. I'll be okay, and I'm going home." Jessup supported Lancaster as they entered the space station. His old crew was there waiting to greet him. They were all immensely pleased to have him back, though Karen wept bitterly on his shoulder. "'It's all right,' he told her. "'I'm not in such bad shape as I look. Honest, Karen, I'm, I'm all right. And now that I have gotten back and know where I really belong, damn, but it was worth it.' She looked at him with eyes as gray as a rainy dawn. "'And you are with us?' she whispered. "'You're one of us? Of your own will?' "'Of course I am. Give me a week or two to rest, and I'll be back in the lab bossing all of you like a Simon Legree. Hell, we've just begun on that super-dielectricity, and there are a lot of other things I want to try out, too.' "'It means exile,' she said. No more blue skies and green valleys and ocean winds. No more going back to Earth. Well, there are other planets, aren't there? 
and we'll go back to Earth in the next decade, I bet. Back to start a new American Revolution and write the Bill of Rights in the sky for all to see." Lancaster grinned shyly. I am not much at making speeches, and I certainly don't like to listen to them. But I've learned the truth, and I want to say it out loud. The right of a man to be free is the most basic one he's got. And when he gives that up, he finishes by surrendering everything else, too. You people are fighting to bring back honesty and liberty and the possibility of progress. I hope nobody here is a fanatic, because fanaticism is exactly what we're fighting against. I say we because, from now on, I'm one of you. That is, if you're sure you want me." He stopped clumsily. Okay. Speech ended. Karen drew a shivering breath and smiled at him. And everything else just begun, Alan, she said. He nodded, feeling too much for words. Get to bed with you, ordered Pappas. Jessup led Lancaster off, and one by one the others drifted back to their jobs. Finally only Karen and Berg stood by the airlock. You keep your beautiful mouth shut, my dear, said the man. Oh, sure, Karen sighed unhappily. I wish I'd never learned your scheme. When you explained it to me, I wanted to shoot you. You insisted on an explanation, said Berg defensively. When Alan was due to go back to Earth, you wanted us to tell him who we were and keep him. But it wouldn't have worked. I've studied his dossier, and he's not the kind of man to switch loyalties that easily. If we were to have him at all, it could only be with his full consent. And now we've got him." It was still a lousy trick, she said. Of course it was. But we had no choice. We had to have a first-rate physicist. You know, she said, you're a rat from way back. That I am. And by and large I enjoy it, Berg grimaced. Though, I must admit, this job leaves a bad taste in my mouth. I like Alan. It was the hardest thing I ever did, tipping off the Federal Police about him." He turned on his heel and walked away, smiling faintly. End of Part 2 of Security by Powell Anderson